0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to A Higher Future podcast. I am UB Simigneti with Nicole Gravagna. Hi, Doc.
1: Hi, Ubi. Who are we talking with today?
0: Uh, so we, we're excited. We, we have a, a wonderful guest who really is, you know, uh, we're excited about the global perspective of this conversation. Um, but please welcome Daisy Oje Dominguez, who is the Chief People Officer for Vice Media Group. It's so great to have you. How are you?
2: Thank you B. I'm so excited to be here and Nicole with you as well
0: awesome well yeah we're, we're excited because again you know so vice media right there it's this media uh, organization global reach um, not only from from you know the external work that you do but also your your you have a global team um, but so for you first of all what um, how did you get here to this? You know, as a, your diversity, equity, and inclusion strategist, um, you know, you're on the world stage. How did you get to this work? How did you get into it all?
2: You know, I think like many of my fellow practitioners, I, you know, I got into this work for very personal reasons. Um, I, am, uh, I, am a, I am a U.S. citizen, but I've had a very unique, Im- Im- you know, immigration story. I was born in New York City. Uh, to a, a father who's Dominican and a mother who's Puerto Rican, but I was raised in the Dominican Republic. And I and when I was raised in the Dominican Republic, it was with my grandparents. My parents were teenagers when they had me, and I attended an international school. And so my childhood friends growing up were Danish, Chinese, Israeli, um, you know, uh, um, I'm Austrian. I mean, you you name it, we had we had we had it all. And I grew up with that rich mix of diversity before we even knew what diversity was, if you will. And it was very much rooted on national heritage and identity formation and also what happens when you grow up with mixed cultures and backgrounds. And then I moved to the US when I was a junior in high school and all of a sudden I became Hispanic, right? All of a sudden I was put in one box that said, this is who you are because you are Dominican and Puerto Rican, and you know, and you know, I initially rejected that. Uh, that wasn't the ex- that wasn't my experience. But what I what I really was rejecting was that it was diminishing what what my potential would be. It, it was very clear to me that that box meant less than for a lot of people. A lot of people in you know in the I went to a high school in you know, New Milford, New Jersey, um, lovely high school very few Latino and African, I mean, there was like a handful of us, um, and we all knew each other. Um, And, you know, and so very, very early on, you know, messages like, um, you know, when we were getting accepted to colleges, and one of my peers, a a young white man, um, saying, well, of course, you're going to get into all the schools, you know, it's like, you're getting in because of affirmative action. Um, And at that point, I didn't even know what affirmative action was, right? So I was, I I was an immigrant, if you will. You know, I, I didn't know and I didn't have a, a deep understanding of race relations in, in the US. Uh, but what I did know was that I was smarter than him, that I had better grades than him, um, and that I deserved to get into better schools than him. Um, and so, you know, as a kid, you're navigating that, but, but you're also navigating being othered. Um, and then, you know, I, I went on to college and, and work and, and in college and, you know, and after college, I did a fellowship in public affairs. Um, I was, I gravitated towards issues of social justice and equity. Right. Again, before we even knew what that language was, I had my undergraduate degrees in international relations um, and women's studies, um, because, you know, I realized that I was a lot of the literature I was reading did not include women. And I just, you know, and and within that, I concentrated on Latin America and the Caribbean, because I also realized that we weren't centering identities that to me had been always centered growing up and that I and that therefore I knew Were valuable and worthwhile to understand, Um, and then then I go to work and I'm one of a few people of color, right? I'm one of a few women, and I started my career at Moody's Investor Service, and so all of that, all of that energy just eventually would push me towards being the one that would go to the Black MBA conferences, the Asian MBA conferences, the Hispanic MBA conferences. You know, I I was always just curious about where the talent was and how did you create access and opportunity in places that I knew could be better if that talent was there. Um, And so my career just progressed from there. And I was at Moody's for 12 years. Um, as a credit risk analyst, managing our global foundation, and eventually launching the company's first diversity and inclusion role. So that's how I became, if you will, you know, the DNI practitioner. And from there, I've moved on to Time Warner, which is now Warner Media, Disney, um, Google, and Viacom, all progressively, um, you know, And all, all roles that progressively moved me into more human capital roles, always centered on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And now at Vice Media Group, my anniversary is next week, which is wild because it's <laughs> a wild year. I have yet to meet my boss and the majority of my team in person. Right, um, wow. Well. Um, so we can talk about that in another podcast. Um, but, but I was hired explicitly by Nancy Dubuque, our CEO, because of my background. And she wanted someone that would be shaping our people and culture strategies and, and now social impact, which has been added to my remit, with a focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so I, I get to um, I get to look at all of the practices and policies that I would often try to fix from the back end before. We get to build them now with an equitable lens. We get to, and, and I'll, and you know, I could share everything from the entire employee life journey from recruiting to offboarding. But one of the things that I think is most important to anyone I think that is <laughs> listening to this is everyone is getting ready to go back to offices, right? We are all getting ready to not just go back to offices. But but going back to uh, new workplaces that will, for the vast majority of us, will be hybrid workplaces that will require very different muscles. And in building that, which is a massive undertaking for everyone, right? The, the good news is that we're all every company that I know is doing this. The bad news is that we're all doing it. Um, but the 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 beauty of this is that we get to reimagine what work looks like, and and in all of the exercises from the most mundane which, you know, it's our job, we call it our job slotting exercise, which is where we slot employees into categories of mostly home, mostly in the office, mm-hmm. hybrid, you know, that, that can, that is technically a very mundane exercise of just kind of like, what are the business needs? Where, you know, where do these employees sit? But in the questions we're asking our managers, we're making sure that managers are thinking, you know, think about this from an equity perspective of who you're choosing to come to the office or not and for what reasons and how this or may, may or may not impact their career advancement. Think about, and so we're giving these prompts to leaders to think about it so that this isn't something we have to fix later, but that it's inherently in it. So this is a, a, it's a long way of telling you how I've gotten to where I've gotten to, but also how I apply that to my everyday.
1: Yeah. And in that, so your perspectives are, um, having had a history of seeing the world centered on um, different communities than many of us have been able to see. And so there is this sort of um, inequitable, non-inclusive, and even racist world that many of us have lived in and and have never seen anything else. It's predominantly a white male focused workplace. And and that has been the history of the way it has gone. So what, what does the workplace look like? When we're on the other side of that, when we're no longer in a white male centered workplace, what does that look like?
2: I think it looks beautiful, <laughs> um, and I think it looks beautiful for everyone. Quite frankly, um, you know, let's let's be very clear in in that future of work, if you will. Um, the white male center, when, when you decenter an organization that way, there is a loss to white males. So I, I, I want to be very clear that, you know, that that means that we are opening up space that didn't exist before, because it's been, if not just overly occupied by white men, it's been expected to be occupied by white men, right? So it's about changing expectations, behaviors, and practices. Um, and, you know, and the reason why I think it looks quite beautiful is that you know, I, I do think that it is, it is the world as it is, right? It is creating workplaces that reflect the communities that we live in, that reflect the communities that we serve. Um, and, and, it is a, and, and they are, to me, these are workplaces where there is light, where there is openness, where there is true creativity and collaboration and not fear where there is true engagement and, you know, and, and challenges and learning and, you know, and tensions, right? Because we all live in tensions, but, but it is a place where all of those can coexist and, you know, and create not just better practices and better products and, you know, and better content and whatever it is that your organization produces, but also create better experiences for the employees who are there. So I think that's what that those organizations look like. Now that is, you know, it's it's the the um, you know sort of symbolic piece of it. The operational piece of that is is that yes, there will be you know more spots opened up for uh, for talent that looks very different from what we have um, historically defined as professional norms. Right, our professional norms have been very much defined by white male standards, and and that unless we change that, unless we change that from an expectations perspective. And by the way, I'm, I don't mean that that work is solely on white men. That work is also on all of us, right? We, we live in this world and whether we like it or not, many of the decisions that we make are still based on those standards. Um, but it does mean that the work has to be done by white men in tandem with everybody else, right? For, for many years and you know, in the last two decades of me doing this work, we've said, this work has to be done from the top. This work has to be done from leadership. And, you know, and but we haven't put the words, you know, to that. I was like, this work has to be done by white men, <laughs> right? Um, it yeah. really is, I think, in the last year that we've given ourselves a little bit of liberty to use language like that because of just, you know, the drastic changes that we faced and and the language that we use now around white supremacy and white privilege. These were words that for many years in corporate America, we were just so afraid of same because we didn't want to alienate the white man, right? Um, and let me tell you, I was like, I don't want to alienate anybody. I want to. I want there's space here for everybody, um, and that means that we all have to hold ourselves accountable, and that we all have to hold ourselves accountable for the role that we want to play, for the roles that we can play, and sometimes that role may mean stepping back and letting somebody else shine.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I love you know. So so I mean, then. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, go ahead, Yubi. Well, no, I was going to say, I turn it to what you said, um, you know, in this new post-COVID world, right? There is this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for every organization to, to look at um, the, the job slotting, but do that in a much more intentional way. Because now we can really look at every single one of our employees, understand who they are, you know, the intersectionality of all of these different identities um, and, and how can we go about rebuilding in the right way to accommodate, support and include all of those different identities. And it, it really like perfect time to do it. Perfect time for everyone to do it. And if, oh, you, don't, if you don't, you're, guess what? You're in trouble if you don't because it's going to be expected now. Even more. But it's
2: not that it's going to be, it is expected. It is. It this, is. This, generation, this, this generation is uh far more demanding and less patient than any other generation, as they should be. Um, and if you know the research that that comes out and, and you know, at Advice Media Group, our our teams have been, you know, are are constantly researching, particularly Gen Zs and millennials. And you know, and it's fascinating um just to see that, you know, they the way that they perceive the future of work is not necessarily location based, right? But it is based on values. It's based on shared expectations, and you know, and those expectations are around diversity and inclusion and belonging and psychological safety. And so, workplaces that do not deliver that will not be competitive, right? They will, they will simply not. And and let's be clear: there's workplaces that will that. You know the, the the whole beauty of diversity is that there's something for everyone right oh. so there will be some workplaces frankly where people will be fine the way that they are and that's and that's fine for them based on what they deliver and how they deliver it but the vast majority of what we produce create you know share engage in will be and has been shaped by the catastrophic events of this past year and and it has accelerated in in a painful and beautiful way, the change that many of us had been advocating for decades. And so that, that we we can't unsee what we've seen, right? We can't unchange that. What, what, what is, what we should be mindful of, and, and I'm starting to see it now, is there are always retrenchments in this work, right? Last year, Right at the, at the cusp of the pandemic, I started even writing about this I, because I, just, I felt this urgency of reminding everybody, these are the times when diversity and inclusion initiatives get cut, right? Because at, at, from a survival perspective, everything that has to get cut will get cut, but the first things will be diversity and inclusion, and I would argue that the last things that should be cut are the diversity inclusion initiatives that have to do with your employees and their well-being right yeah the chicken dinners yes all of that you can cut but you know but but what's going to really you know um nurture and engage your teams that you hold on to for dear life and then we then we sadly you know experienced and we didn't experience then we sadly um all witnessed george floyd's murder and you know and the events coming from that. And then there was an uptick, right? So there was like some companies started cutting and then everybody started either investing or just making lots of promises, right? Lots of pledges. Everybody was like, we're going to, you know, we're going to eradicate racism. And what we're seeing now, and I'm starting to see that and sort of my spidey senses are are always up around this is now we're seeing companies, you know, coming back, things normalizing a bit. We are starting to see some companies like you know uh base camp and coinbase you know their their ceos putting out very public uh statements pretty much saying like you know and and they, they, this is not the language they use but they're pretty much saying "I was like we could care less about inclusion and we could care less about voice this is what we need you to do and yep. and to me those those actions are really telling because it gives freedom to those leaders who have been teetering to go like oh well, like okay, fine, like if they did it, I'm going to do it. And it also, in moments of stress as our leaders, none of us make good choices, right? And so we still have organizations that are still trying to survive. And that may very well be deciding what or what not needs to be cut or and may, may start you know, doing away with some of the work that they're doing or for, forget doing away, just not complying with the pledges that they made, right? Just not delivering on those. And what happens, though, this time, that's another thing that's different from from before. And there's so many. But I will say what's different now is that everybody hired diversity leader at a rapid, rapid pace. I mean, so much so that I can't you know, I I tell the headhunters who call me, I was like, all the good people are gone. Like, I don't know who else. to. (laughs) Um, But the challenge is that now they have all these people in their organizations and they don't know what to do with them. Um, and I know because I mentor many of them and they're, you know, people like, like many times I've entered organizations, they were like, yay, you're, I was told we can do this. And now they're going like, oh no, I got no budget, Daisy. And I, you know, and, and I can't get an audience with my CEO and, you know, and I'm being layered under this person now because they're, they're still trying to figure out what to do with me. And so that is what I'm seeing as one of the fear points now.
1: Well, that brings us to, you brought up catastrophes and we're in a global world now where we have global teams. Everyone knows someone from somewhere else and probably works with someone who lives somewhere else. And so we're in this this um, time where Crises are something we can only pretend to not see, and so what's going on in India with the pandemic right now, or violence in Brazil, um, these things are in our faces, even if they're not in our experiences. And and so, what are you doing? And this is probably maybe what other people in a similar role—that's what they really need. Their companies need to be funding them to do. But what are you doing about those kinds of things in your company?
2: Uh, you know, we've. We have been consistent this past year in communicating to our employees um, from a sense of community, um, uh, you know, our collective sense of grief, fear, anxiety, and where we stand as an organization, all the way from George Floyd's murder, which, was, which happened two weeks after I had joined the company. And that was my first, my first note to the entire company. Was following George uh, George Floyd's murder, um, sharing resources with the with our employees, um, reminding everybody about our you know our employment assistance programs and counseling that we offer, and just reminding everybody that we were all going through very different traumas and and that we needed to acknowledge that and create that space um, to honor that across the board, and you know and and we've done that. You know, sadly, we've had many other crises like that throughout throughout um, this past year. Um, earlier this year, you know, right after this, you know right up, you know before the the verdict came for the Derek Chauvin um, trial, I had two letters, right, because I I was preparing for the worst, as many of us were, sadly, um, but hoping for the best. And so, you know, I I wanted to make sure that I had at the ready what I could provide our teams with. To help them get through these moments, we've done this with AAPI violence, um, and most recently with the crisis in India, which has been just absolutely devastating. I mean, this is a global human crisis. We have a, we have teams there that we are responsible for, and our first responsibility is to center on them, is to make sure that they are safe. And so, the first thing we've done is that we you know we went to them. We had a global all hands. We sat down with them. We said, "What do you need?" We sat down with our leadership. And we decided on several courses of action, including immediately reducing their workloads. And so they're moving to a four day work week because it's not just individually, where you have to think about the context from a cultural lens. These are individuals that work with extended families, that live with extended families, and that are taking care of many others. And so, you know, a typical work week is impossible for most human beings, quite frankly, let's be honest. Um, and especially under these conditions. So we did that. On top of that, we layered that with more flexibility for them. Um, we have continued to remind them of our global employment assistance programs to make sure that they're handling the stresses that come from this, because it's impossible to not be impacted emotionally by all of this. Um, and then we've also um, augmented our healthcare benefits because in, in our discovery, we recognize that the insurance benefits for most of the country do not uh, cover for in home COVID care, which, in my opinion, is quite frankly inhuman at a moment like this. Um, but we made sure that we are, you know, we worked with our insurance partners and had to buy external insurance coverage because our teams need to know that if they need to cover, you know, tylenol and you know just basic medicine which by the way it's almost nearly impossible to find as well in the country but that, if, that they can that they, that will be covered and that that won't be an extra weight on them on top of everything else that they're facing. But we didn't, we didn't just keep it to them we shared a note like that globally with the entire company and you know and in it we shared the content that we create. An article that had been written by one of our team members with vetted organizations that you could support that actually clearly explained what the money that you give them does, mm-hmm. um, because especially when you have such distance from events like this and you don't you don't you don't quite know what to trust and who to trust. We wanted to make sure that there was something that was people understood there were re- there are tons of reliable embedded organizations locally that are doing just Herculean efforts right now to safeguard um, the people of India in a way that sadly. Um, their government has not. And so um, so that's the work that we do. And because we're in over 20 countries globally, this, um, you know, uh, Nicole, this is work that we have to do constantly. And, you know, and it's not that we bring up every single issue on a global scale, but we, we do from a decisioning criteria perspective, um, uh, you know, applying an equity lens to it, we do want to make sure that Um, We are communicating to our employees globally what is happening to our employees globally and that there is a a communal sense of we we truly are together. This isn't just the U.S. mandating what happens or that if it hurts in the U.S., it only hurts here because where it hurts, that's where we need to address pain.
0: And I I think that's the the, such a huge lesson for other organizations to take. from, from vice specifically, but also from like a media industry, a media organization, because there is this sort of extra responsibility because you're not only communicating internally to your entire employee base, but you're also communicating externally through your journalistic and other media um, uh, stories and things like that. And I, I think that's a great way to kind of close this conversation is, is what, what, you know, what is that responsibility? How, how does that feel? How do you approach that? And how do you, you know, the, the, how do people respond to that, that equitable way in which you're communicating both internally and externally?
2: Um, well, so I'll start with the response, because what, what I get is responses from, from employees who feel seen, heard, and valued. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I get thank yous from employees. Um, I get, you know, and, and I rather get a thank you from an employee than an employee having to push me to do something. Um, but, but frankly, I have also been, you know, I've also gotten those emails where I've I've said, I was like, Hey, you haven't commented on this, or you haven't said that. And, you know, and we go through the same process and, you know, and I've, and I've, and I'm glad, you know, and, and you, and, and you need to create that level of psychological safety in an organization where people know. Like I can reach out to my CEO, my chief people officer and say, this is important to me. What, you know, what are you going to do about it, if anything? And we need to, you know, regardless of whether we're going to do something or not, because in some cases we're not, and in some cases we will, we need to be able to be responsive, timely, fair, and compassionate. Um, And, you know, and and I think that that's, that, that's really critical in all these pieces. So that's, the response has been very positive. At the end of the day, you be, this, the tone get always gets set at the top. So this work has to not just be done by me, but it's got to be done by our leaders. And you know, and and in many ways, you know, we we also you know in some ways we architect how this works because I'm not the only one that sends these notes, right? I, I'm often very mindful of like they don't need to hear from me right now; they need to hear from you. Or you know, I was like, why don't you send this note? And then, then the follow-up notes will be this way, right? And and but and let's be fair, also, like people don't just want notes. People just want to be acknowledged and cared for. Uh, but the reason and the purpose for the notes is that it's it allows us to scale the message, and then it also allows to for managers to have skin in the game to recognize. I was like, it's now on you to make sure that this isn't just a blanket statement that gets sent out, but that employees. If we said they were going to give be given flexible work arrangements, that they get they, they, that they receive flexible work arrangements, right. and so when I sent out the global note, which we had already sent locally, telling employees that um, we had actually told them verbally that they will be receiving flexible work uh, arrangements and four day work weeks, when I sent the note globally, there was a little reminder there in that bullet that said, "For any of you that are working with these teams, please abide by these new guidelines." Um, and so it is. We're all accountable, but we have to be reminded of our accountabilities from time to time. And that's and that's fine. That doesn't that doesn't bother me. What you know, what pains me is when you've been given a roadmap and you and you know what's right and you don't do it. I don't mind reminding you. I don't mind, by the way, ensuring that you have the right competencies and capabilities because we do expect a lot from leaders and managers, and they're not superhuman, right? They will make mistakes like. I make mistakes every single day. Um, and so I, you know, I apply the same grace and compassion. I try to myself that I do with others and, and saying, hey, listen, you don't have to have all the answers. Here's some of them and build them out. But you do have to do something. You have to show evidence of care. You have to be there for your teams. That is a minimum. How you do it, it's up to you.
0: Mm. Well, I can't thank you enough. This was an amazing conversation. Um, you know really just a great roadmap I think for other organizations to to start to think about this because as you know it is expected now and so either either you do it or you might not be around much longer so that's that's the new normal that's the future of work so daisy thank you so much this was amazing
2: oh it's my pleasure thank you and Nicole
0: <laughs> absolutely all right everybody thank you so much thanks for tuning in we'll check you next time bye